Now let's bow and let's pray and ask the Spirit to be our teacher. Father, we come before you and we humbly ask that you would uh, give us the meaning, the exposition, and the application of your word to our lives this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you were able, I would ask you to stand one more time for the reading of God's word. We are picking up, as like I said, the section of scripture we're going through is Romans chapter 9 through 11. So we're in chapter 9, beginning at verse 6, and I'm going to read down to verse 13. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the things Evie and I love to do is we watch, like to watch true crime dramas on TV. Anybody else like true crime dramas? Okay. The one we're into right now, we're streaming, and we do this every now and then. We kind of binge a season. Is that right? You binge? I don't know if that's a good thing or not. The one we're watching right now is Homeland. I don't know if any of you all have seen Homeland. It stars Claire Danes, and she is a CIA agent. So I love this. And there's always some sort of crime that's committed. What you've got is a crime that's committed, something's done, terrorist plot, something like that. And you have Claire Danes, the CIA agent, and you have some other law enforcement agent. And on the one side, the one law enforcement agent will will usually come. The plot is fairly simple. And I always love when the plot is simple because then I don't have to ask Evie 50 million questions. And she appreciates that because otherwise... I'm like inquiring minds want to know. Where was this guy born? Wait a second. Doesn't have anything to do with it. So the one law enforcement agent will normally kind of do, that's it, this is it, face value, take it, and that's it. And Claire Danes will come in and she'll go, well, wait a second, what you're saying is true, but if we look at it from this perspective and we look at this angle and maybe we ask this question about it and we approach it this way, then maybe we'll come to the knowledge of the truth. And so what do you have here? You have both people seeking the truth, and they do something, and this is something I think we see in the scriptures. This may sound like a shocking statement to you. It is okay to doubt, but it depends on how you doubt. Let me explain what I mean. There is an unhealthy way to doubt, and a healthy way to doubt. There are questions and doubts that aren't legitimate, and there are some that are legitimate. Unhealthy is from a position of complete unbelief and rebellion. That is not really seeking the truth. You've already made up your mind, 
no matter what. You have a presupposition that it's not true, and no matter what evidence is presented, that's just your presupposition. There is another, I mean, think about, I'll just give one scriptural example, for instance. Psalm 13, a psalm of David, begins, How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? How long will my tears be my food? Will sorrow be with me? How long will you? He's basically questioning God. Now you say, what makes that healthy doubt? He's processing it in the presence before God. He is taking his legitimate questions and bringing them to God, which leads him in the end, and we're not even told in Psalm 13 how it leads him, but in the end he says, but I've come to trust in your unfailing love. I've come to trust in yourself. Psalm 13, we're not studying Psalm 13 this morning, but it is a fascinating psalm, by the way, because you get to You get all of this kind of stuff. How long? You're going to forget me forever? What are you doing, Lord? All this. And then all of a sudden, he jumps to verse 4. But I trust in your unfailing love. And again, my mind's asking 50 million questions. How did you get from that point to that point? But it's healthy doubt asking legitimate questions because you know what it's doing? It is seeking the truth. And in a sense, it's doing what the Christian philosopher and theologian of the 11th century, a man by the name of St. Anselm of Canterbury, said when he said it's faith. So notice the beginning part. It's belief. It's trusting God being God, seeking understanding. In a sense, that's what's going on here in Romans chapter 9 and in Romans chapter 9 through 11. Let me review for a brief second where we left off. The overall theme of the entire letter is God's righteousness and faithfulness to both Jews and Gentiles. Faith, belief, God is true, God is righteous, God is faithful. He will accomplish what he set out to accomplish. We said last week Romans 9 to 11 is not some parentheses or bracket or appendix talking about a different subject of the letter, but it is absolutely essential to the overall message of the letter. So chapter 8 ends with this exuberant, neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor height nor depth nor present nor the future will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Ends with Paul describing exuberantly that the blessings ascribed to Israel in the Old Testament are now ascribed to the church, which all of a sudden raises a very important, and legitimate question. Notice Paul's not rebuking this question coming to the table. The question is, have the promises simply been transferred to the church and is ethnic Israel left completely outside? Has the church simply replaced Israel? And that means a more fundamental question of that is, has God's word failed? Are the promises of God not true? And notice in verse 6, he immediately answers that. He allows the question to come to the table, and he immediately answers that, saying, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So in other words, this verse, chapter 9, verse 6, which is actually pretty much the theme verse, the thesis of the entire section of of chapters 9 through 11, is that God's word has not failed failed. God is righteous, 
God is faithful. God can be trusted. But, remember the passage of Scripture Rick read for us in our confession section? Be not wise in your own sight. God's word has not failed does not necessarily mean that our perspective doesn't need to be tweaked a little bit. Does not necessarily mean that we have complete and infallible comprehension and understanding of God's word, which means we always have to have a posture in approaching God's word of humility. A beginning posture of God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Take that into our understanding of scripture and say, maybe my perspective, maybe my understanding, maybe my interpretation has to be tweaked. So in other words, an unwavering faith, God's word is true. So an unwavering faith in God, not so unwavering a faith in yourself. An unwavering faith in God, but maybe a little bit of humility that maybe your understanding of the trajectory of the Word of God is, might, not, might not be exactly what you thought. And so here's what Paul is revealing and getting to, especially in this section of Romans chapter 9. The trajectory of God's Word reveals one thing, that God's story is about one thing, and that one thing is grace. God's story is a story of grace and rescue. It is something, God's word has not failed, but God's word is a revelation of grace. And grace is not something we typically understand. As a matter of fact, maybe I'll go so far as to say, God's grace is something we're a little allergic to. We tend to think we're allergic to pollen. It doesn't even come close to the allergy we have to grace. And so in this particular passage, we want to look at it from two perspectives. The story of grace and the purpose of grace. Okay? What is Paul doing here? He's doing what many did in his day, and that is he's telling the story of his people, the Israelites. A story that, remember, in its original context there in Rome, many of his original readers would be, were Jewish, and they'd be familiar with the story. Remember that Paul, in his own, remember Paul's history, his background, he's a Jewish thinker. That's who he is. He was trained at the feet of one of the leading rabbis of the day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. So he's used to teaching kind of out of that. That's his background. That's his education. That's who he is. You can never deny who you are humanly. God created, remember, he's God's workmanship. And as one commentator noted, Jewish thinkers in his day often would retell the story of Israel beginning with Abraham or even with Adam, in order to explain the whole sequence of God's actions in their history up to the present day and even beyond. Paul is doing something similar here. Here he is telling from one surprising angle the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of Ishmael and Esau as well, in order to explain what the map, which is God's word of promise, had in mind all along. God is a master storyteller. And where does Paul begin in telling the story? Back at the beginning, which for him was Abraham. So look what he does. Verse 6, he says, for not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. 
But, quoting here out of Genesis chapter 21, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Well, here's our first surprise. Here's the first kind of tweak in the perspective of the story. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Okay, it's time to scratch your heads a little bit. Kind of go, hmm, what's going on here? Not all are children of Abraham just because they are his offspring. What exactly is Paul teaching here? Well, what he's teaching is that the heart of Abraham's story really says is that the descent from Abraham is not necessarily physical, but spiritual. What is the trajectory of the entire story of God? It's a story of grace. What is God's word trying to get across to us sinners who are allergic to grace? Grace. What is the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael? And even as we go through Jacob and Esau, it's a story of grace. So the descent from Abraham is not, hey, let's do one of those ancestry trees and figure out what all the DNA is and get the physical descent. No. Abraham's true children are not those with the impeccable genealogy, but those who believe as Abraham believed and those obey, obey as Abraham had obeyed. In other words, it's about faith in a Savior, and it's about grace. Paul is saying here, you cannot claim to belong to Abraham unless you belong to Christ. That's why he's saying, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He's saying you can't claim to belong to Abraham unless you belong to Christ. So in other words, there's kind of this double descent, if you would, from Abraham. One false and one true. The false being literal and physical, the true being figurative and spiritual. And they're illustrated in Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, born of different mothers. Ishmael was born into slavery, Isaac was into freedom. He's the child of the promise. He's the child of grace. And see, what do we learn from this? What is the lesson of the story of grace from this? It is that everyone, everyone is a slave by nature until the grace of the gospel is set free. Jesus reflects on this in John chapter 8, verse 34, when he says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The meaning behind this is, by nature, we are born in bondage. By nature, we are all born Ishmaels. Every single human being ever born. Everyone is in either an Ishmael or an Isaac, and everyone is born in Ishmael. You are only set free by the grace of the gospel. You are a child of Abraham through the promise, through grace. That's the first part. He continues then, he says, next in line, he's telling the story of Israel, the story of grace. And he says, kind of next into the batter's box, so to speak. Let's bring up Isaac and Rebekah's children, Jacob and Esau. And the text continues, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children, 
by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, which is an amazing statement at all. They're in the womb. How much can they contribute at this point? I just want you to think about this. It says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. Okay, so what's Paul doing? He's saying, okay, my readers, let's look back at the story. Go back with me this time to Genesis chapter 25 and the birth of Isaac and Rebekah's sons, Jacob and Esau. And the specific passage he has in mind here is Genesis 25, 23, which says and begins, and the Lord said to her. Now, that's amazing because I want to point something out to you in terms of this. The Lord said to whom? To Rebekah. Because Rebekah was experiencing twins in her womb. And they were jostling, and she didn't know what was going on. So what did she do? She brought her healthy doubt, belief in God, but kind of said, um, Lord, because the text says she inquired of the Lord. So she took her concerns, she took her doubt, she took her questions, and she processed it before God. Kind of said, Lord, what's going on here? What's happening? And the Lord said to her, um, two nations are in your womb. You think you'd have a few questions after that? Excuse me, two, are these big nations? Are we talking China? Or is this, small, is this a Gog-Magog situation? Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So notice what's going on here. This is not just simple natural birth. Something more significant. Can we say the story of grace is what's going on. The two sons are the founders and the rep representatives of two great peoples. And again, don't think physical nations. Think two peoples. And by sovereign election alone, God declares that the promised line would belong to Jacob, the younger son. Now, I'm not here to preach on Genesis 25, but that is completely countercultural and counterintuitive to, because in that patriarchal and that society, all of the birthrights, all of the rights, all of the inheritance went to the oldest. The oldest was the one who got all of that. So what again are we learning? We're learning it's of grace. Grace doesn't always make human sense. And what is the theme here? The theme's election. And what is the point of election? Once again, it's grace. It's not the story of arguing about fairness. It's not the story of justice and injustice. And it's certainly not the story of feeling superior. Verse 10 says, before either was born, before either had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. See, what we're seeing here is the destiny of two nations, two peoples, and totally through God's sovereign election. Now, I know election is a controversial teaching, but it is clearly taught in the Bible. But that certainly does not mean that we understand everything concerning it or that there isn't a great deal of mystery involved in it. 
Remember our confession verse. Be not wise in your own eyes. Recognize that's a command, by the way. You weren't given an option there. You're not given an option of saying, oh, you're an expert, you have all the answers. No, obedience is sometimes saying, I don't know. And this is one of those where faith-seeking understanding says, the Bible clearly teaches it, we can't deny that. But there are a whole lot of answers, a whole lot of questions that we don't have the answers to. See, whenever I get tempted to think, who does God think he is anyway? Want to know what answer comes back into my mind? God. <laughs> kind of like, who do you think you are? I'm God. And who is God? Psalm 115, verse 3. He does whatever pleases him. But here's one thing is clear about the teaching of God's absolute unwavering sovereignty. And that is election is always connected with grace and humility. See, if the divine oracle expresses a scandalous decision on the part of God, in other words, if election seems scandalous, grace is downright offensive. It seems in the Bible the doctrine of election is always taught in connection with grace. In other words, the purpose of this doctrine seems to be to get us to understand more about grace and to humble us. The purpose of God putting this in the Bible is to humble us. That's the story of grace. What's the purpose of grace? What is the purpose of election? Well, going back to the very beginning and the calling of Abraham, when God calls Abraham, the father of Israel, he says to him back in Genesis chapter 12, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The purpose of grace is mission. The purpose of grace is Abraham, after being the recipient of blessing, becomes the mediator of blessing. And to whom? All the families of the earth. All peoples. Grace. Salvation. The message of the gospel. Forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation is to come to the world through the family of Abraham. And according to both Romans and Galatians, the family of Abraham is the people of God, believing Jews and Gentiles who are incorporated into Christ. In other words, the church. The purpose and the point of election and grace, the point of being Israel, is to be the carrier of grace to the world. In other words, mission is at the heart of our purpose. Doing the work of the Gideons is the heart of what it means to be the church. It means the church does not exist for itself. So if you look with me at verse 13, where it says, As it is written, Jacob I loved... But Esau, I hated. First of all, as it is written, I wonder how many of us were aware that this is actually alluding to the prophet Malachi. That what Paul is doing here is he's quoting Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And when he says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, what do you think God's doing? Is he, you know, sitting down and talking to a therapist and saying, I'm really struggling with my feelings towards Esau. I'm being sarcastic there, you're supposed to laugh. 
Obviously, this is not a psychological point. There's a theological point going on here. And according to one commentator, I think he quite rightly puts it when he says, we need to reflect on what Malachi himself meant when he said that God loved Jacob but hated Esau. There was no question that God had done remarkable things for Israel, Jacob's family, while Edom, the family of Esau, had collapsed into insignificance. But the point the prophet was making was that this now increased the responsibility and culpability of Israel. The thrust was not, oh, you are so special, so why don't you go sit back and take it easy? It was always, you are so special, you are my treasured possession. Why are you taking God for granted, failing to honor him and ignoring your call to carry forward his purposes? God's choice never results in easy, arrogant, automatic superiority. Much is expected of those to whom much is given. Jacob, I loved. You're the bride of Christ upon whom the destiny of Israel fell, made up of those Jews and Gentiles who've been called to be in Christ, exist. We exist. Our very purpose now is to be the bearer and the carrier of this great message of salvation to a dying world. That's the point of Jacob, I loved. I loved you so that you could share that love with others. It, will, it is in you, family of Abraham, that all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. That is the purpose of grace. That is the purpose of election. God's word has not failed. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. And we thank you, Father, for its truth. And Lord, we pray that our lives would be conformed and shaped by the light of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.